Hello and welcome back to the Audio DT with Reb T, the Audio Devar Torah with Reb T, this year where we talk about the Parsha of the week with some practical lessons to keep. And of course, this week, it's not just the Parsha of the week, but also the holiday of the week, the Chag of the week, that of Purim. Let's talk a little bit about being nameless, shall we? So Tetzave, we come to another Parsha detailing, talking about the aspects of the Mishkan, the garments, the Kohen, the Kohen Gadom. And in in Perik Chav Zayin, Pasuk Chav, it says, right in the beginning of the Parsha, Ve'ata Tetzave, es b'nei Yisrael v'yikhu elach Hashem en and we're talking about the vessels and the aspects of the Mishkan, talking about lighting the menorah, lighting the, the, the Mishkan menorah, lighting the candles. But who is being talked to here? The Pasik says, Vi'ata, and you. Who is Hashem talking to? You shall command the children of Israel, and they take to you the pure olive oil. Who is being commanded here? Why is there no name mentioned in the Pasukim of who Hashem is talking to? So Chabad points out from the Baal HaTurim, when it says, And you shall command, Titzave is the only Parsha in the Torah since Moshe's birth, in which Moshe's name does not appear, with the exception of the book of Devarim, which consists mostly of a first-person narrative spoken by Moshe, a first-person account, where he's talking to the Jewish people in the last 36 or so days of his life, giving them the brachos and explaining the course of Jewish history and the shirim and, and, and detailing throughout the events of the, of the previous 40 years and whatnot. But besides for Devarim, this is the only parsha since his birth where his name is not there. The reason for this is that when the people of, the, of B'nai Yisrael sinned with the Egel HaZahav, with the golden calf, Moshe said to Hashem, If you do not forgive them, erase me from the book that you have written. And that's in Shemos, in Perik, Lamed Gimel, Pasuk, Lamed Aleph. So that's coming up. In the timeline of things, it's it's debated by the commentators if the if the Mishkan was after the Egelzav, or it was always there, or it was a response. But... The way it's laid on the parashiot, it comes out in a couple of prakim. But even so, Moshe talks over there, you know, if you're not going to forgive them, get me out of your book. Erase me. Take my name away. Let me be nameless. So instead of taking Moshe's name out of the entire book, obviously he's not in the Sefer of Barishas until he shows up in Shemos, and then he's there through Devarim. But the the solution, where was this realized? It was realized in the Parsha of Titzavim. Since the censure of a righteous person, even if made conditional on an unfulfilled stipulation, always has some effect. So Hashem forgave the Jews, but Moshe still said, you know, take my name out. So even though Hashem forgave the Jews on some small level, his name still had to be taken out, so it was taken out of Tetzavah. It reminds me of the idea of how the, the, the curse or the blessing of a tzaddik, even if unintentional or even without such intention, can come true, will come true. You know, Yaakov says to Lavan, when Lavan's looking for his trough and his idols, and they're under Rachel, and Rachel says, the way of the woman is on me, I can't stand up, I can't get it. So she's hiding the trophim, you know, so Yaakov says, whoever has the trophim, that person will die. 
So she didn't die at that second, but when she had Binyamin, which she called Ben Onin, she died. So the, the, the stipulation that Yaakov said somewhat came true. And even other sages, I can't remember the examples offhand, but when it's said in a certain way, there is some effect. So here too, in the parsha, Moshe's stipulation in some aspect came true, and his name was obliterated, is taken out of Tetzava, as pointed out by Baal Haturim on Chabad. The Lubavitcher Rebbe points out, while Moshe's name does not appear in the parsha of Tetzavim, Moshe himself is very much present. The entire Parsha consists of God's words to Moshe. Indeed, the Parsha's first word is Ve'ata, and you. The you, who is the you? The you being the person of Moshe. Indeed, the word you connotes its subject's very self, while a person's name is a more superficial quote-unquote handle on his personality. This means that Moshe is more present in our Parsha. That is, he is present in a deeper, more essential way than any mention of his name could possibly express. Sometimes if we don't have a person's name, but we have his presence, we have the ability to understand he's there, we feel his presence even more than if his name was there. Sometimes by not having the name, you feel the name there even more. They have the handle on it, even though his name is not there, the, the aspect of Moshe here in this Parsha is more present in the Parsha, present in a deeper, more essential way than any mention of the name could express. This is fully in keeping with the Balaturim's explanation, which we talked about before, because Moshe was prepared to forgo mention of his name in the Torah for the sake of his people, he merited that his quintessential self, the level of self that cannot be captured by any name or designation, be eternalized by the Torah. It is this level of Moshe's self that is expressed by his nameless presence in the Parsha of Titzavim. So sometimes a name doesn't have to be there for your presence to be there. A person who, who, who does for others, a person who takes care of others, a person who's involved in dealing with others but doesn't have his name mentioned, you could still feel his presence, you could still feel his existence even if we don't see his name. Even if his name is not up in bright lights, even if his name is not up as big as the Hollywood sign, the Hamdel, it's not there, on a building or whatnot, you can still feel the person's presence. So even though Moshe's name is not in Tetzavah, we still feel his presence. We still see his presence and we still can understand that his presence is definitely still there. The idea of being nameless, even though his name is not there, his presence is definitely still there behind the scenes. And how interesting, how apropos that this is coming out the actual week of Purim, the major aspect of whose name is not in the Megillah. Nowhere in the Megillah do we see Hashem's name mentioned. Of course it says Hamelach. Some of the commentators point out that Hamelach talks about Hashem, the only true king in the world, how we say on Yom Kippur and Rosh Hashanah, Hamelach. He's the king, the only king, the one king. But the actual word Hashem or any of its forms that we see throughout the, the the Torah and we see throughout Tanakh and throughout all of our uh, all of our writings and whatnot, it's not there in the Megillah.
Purim is this Thursday night Friday. Hashem's name is not in the Megillah. Why is Hashem's name not in the Megillah? We always think about how it's not there, but do we ever think about why it's not there? Why is Hashem's name not there? So Chabad points out with author Yisrael Cutler, the question people have often is people point out that throughout the entire story of Purim and the Megillah, Hashem is not mentioned once. The idea is that the story is about Hashem miraculously saving us, though it looks like it's through seemingly natural events. If so, they ask in Chabad, why do we leave him out of the story? So many Jewish commentators had the same question way before anybody of, of recent four had, and they discussed the issue at length. One of the many answers, as the author points out in Chabad, is that we can compare the story of Purim with that of other holidays. Ever notice how the plot features no open miracles? No sea split, no mass revelation, no dwelling in clouds for 40 years, no overcoming an enemy a hundred times our size using guerrilla warfare, like Hanukkah. What did happen? A lot of people were in the right place at the right time to provide just the political clout necessary when needed. What a coincidence. Of course, it's not a coincidence at all. Judaism doesn't believe in coincidence. We call it hashkacha pratis. The intervention, the specific intervention, the divine providence of Hashem orchestrating, pulling all the strings. The word coincidence is not part of the Jewish lexicon. All these events were deliberately orchestrated from above by Hashem only that the conductor stood behind the stage. Now you understand why, a, why Purim is a holiday of masks. The costumes conceal one's real identity, just like the dough of the hamantash hides over the fruit filling, just like natural events hid over divine intervention. One of the things I love about Judaism is that all the holidays, all the aspects have such deep meaning to seemingly physical, seemingly material things. You never think of a hamantash as having such a deep meaning, but look, it's trying to hide what's inside. You never think about oil, oily things. What does it really represent? It represents the oil of the lights on Hanukkah. You know, secular society, Lahavdal, secular holidays have no real deep meaning. Even a, even a, a devout Christian, how could they explain any of their holidays? And Rabbi Lawrence Kelman talks about this. Even a really devout Christian, they're not going to be able to explain the, the, the whole aspect of the Havdal of Xmas because it's a seemingly random jumble of things that were thrown into one day in, at the end of December to appease everybody like a Mishka Babel Cholent just to get more people and talking about how it's X or Y or Z. But our holidays, every holiday has significant, beautiful, deep meaning and the foods tie in. The actions tie in. The the actual mitzvahs tie in. And they're all easily found. Hanukkah, we tie in oil to the holiday. We tie in lights to the holiday. We have the whole lecture about Hanukkah. I could talk about Hanukkah for hours. It's my favorite holiday of the whole year. Purim, it's easy to tie in. Literally, the Megillah itself talks about Meshloch Manot Ishlereyu Matanot Levyonim. And Yumei Meshtev Simcha. And we talk about 
how we have to read Igeris Hazos, this letter, the scroll that was originally written. Pesach is coming up in a month or so. It's easy to tie in the actual carbon Pesach and Matzah and Marur and all the aspects of saying Hallel. In the Gemara today, in the Daf, we talked about how when you see a mitzvah, when you're involved in the mitzvah, you're supposed to be happy, singing, joyous about the mitzvah. That's why we say Hallel on the major Jewish holidays and, and different Jewish events. Because who would not say hello when you have the opportunity to, to do the sukkah and to bring the lulav and to bring the carbon Pesach and different things? The question is, why is there not halal on other certain aspects? So if it's, if it's divinely ordained, then it's one thing. If it's rabbinically ordained, it's another thing. That's why the aspect of saying halal on, on Rosh Chodesh and saying halal on Pesach, but other aspects, you know, when do we say halal or when do we not? It has to go based on, on how the sages explain and how the rabbis explain way beyond the purview of my of my purview. But in general, you think about how everything ties in. It's amazing. And even in Purim, the costumes conceal the identity. The dough of the hamantash hides the identity of the fruit filling or the chocolate filling, my favorite, whatever's inside. Just like natural events hid over divine intervention. And... The Megillah hides Hashem's name. But it doesn't even end there. The teachings of Hasidus analyze both types of miracles, hidden and revealed. Just because one is much more pronounced to people, one is much more obvious to people, doesn't mean that the miracles we see every day are not miracles in and of themselves. Nature, weather, is just another name from the from the long arm of Hashem. Hashem gives it a name, but it's no less miraculous for the sun to rise, for the position of the earth, for there to be rain, for there to be snow, for there to be wind. Everything Hashem does is a miracle. You know, if the earth was one degree closer to the sun, they say we would burn up. And if the earth was one degree farther from the sun, they say we would freeze. How is that craziness that Hashem could possibly figure out, craziness in an amazing way, in an awe-inspiring way, how could Hashem figure out exactly where to put it? Obviously, because He's the King of all kings, and He is the supreme one and only real being. He knew exactly where to put the earth so it wouldn't freeze up and it wouldn't burn up. Everything Hashem does is a miracle. Just because we don't realize it doesn't make it any less a miracle. But there are two types, the hidden and the revealed. And you can reach an astonishing conclusion. A miracle masked behind natural events, Purim, is actually more profound than one that breaks natural law, like the Kriyas Yamsuf, spilling of the sea. Why would this be? So the author gives a great analogy from Chaban. A family member used to be a whiz at video games. You would give him a new game and he'd beat it by the end of the day. Eventually, however, he discovered there's another way to beat a game. Cheat codes. Push a few buttons and before you know it, Super Mario can fly runs through walls, and becomes invincible. But of course, play like that, and it doesn't prove that you're a true master of the game. What does that have to do with Purim? Hashem created a system for this video game we're starring in, Lahavdil, that we call the Laws of Nature. He did such a good job that people actually believe that the system runs itself. After all, the weather influences the crops, the stock market, our finances, and our lifestyle, the state of our health. Now, the laws of nature say that if you're surrounded by the world's largest army on one side and the Red Sea on the other side, there's no hope. 
But as we are Jews, we know better. We realize that Hashem, not the system, is in control. The question is how? One way is by overriding the system. The laws of nature say that a sea must flow. No problem. Today, Hashem will make that it won't apply. The law of nature says the sun has to set soon. No problem. Hashem will make sure that's overridden for a few hours. This is the classic miracle, the physics breaker. But then there's another way, the second way. The system doesn't have to be changed. You can play by the rules and still find a way to win. That's Purim. The aim was achieved without any natural laws being broken. Vashti was ousted. Esther was chosen. Mordechai overheard a plot. Achashverosh couldn't sleep. Esther found favor in the king's eyes. Harvona offered advice, and so on and so forth. Miracle number one shows that Hashem is not limited by the laws of nature. But miracle number two shows that all these laws of apparent cause and effect are no more than another tool in the hands of Hashem. He can use them to get whatever He wants, and it will all still look perfectly natural. This is far more relevant to our eyes, to, to our lives today. And this is a far deeper expression of godliness. Not only is He not limited by the rules He made, He's not even limited by their logic, which He made as well. In fact, Kabbalah teaches, obviously we're not supposed to learn Kabbalah till we're 40, but in general, this type of miracle relates more to God's essence than to any of his specific attributes, which gives a deeper insight into why God's name is not mentioned in the Megillah. Each of his names represents another relationship to one of his attributes. But during Purim, we witnessed a miracle that transcended any such attribute, and God's essence has no name also reminds to me the idea of being anonymous, having anonymity, not having to be there on the forefront, but understanding that it's done behind the scenes, understanding that it's done, it's orchestrated, it's pulled by Hashem. H.com points out with author Slovi Youngrice Wolf, Rebetzin Slovi, the daughter of Rebetzin Youngrice and Rabbi Youngrice, she talks about different things that Queen Esther teaches us from the Megillah, and one of them is to look for Hashem's hidden hand. In the entire scroll of Esther, there is no clear mention of God. And interesting, it's called the Igeris Esther, the scroll of Esther, even though really Mordechai and Esther wrote it together with divine inspiration, Ruach HaKodesh. There's no clear mention of God. The name Esther means hidden in, in Hebrew, and they ask in the Gemara Megillah, I believe, where is there a remiss to Esther and to the story in the Torah? I believe the answer is, and I will hide, I will, I will hide away my face, which is very interesting because that's the whole aspect of the Megillah. Hashem literally hides. Hashem is hidden. Hashem makes himself hidden that he's not mentioned in the Megillah, and he's hiding away, pulling the strings behind the scene. Megillah, however, means revelation. Esther is revealing a powerful hidden truth. How easy it is to think that life is a series of random events. How easy it is to think that there's no order to things. It's just random things 
that happen in life, which would be a tragic way to think about life. But the story of Purim could seem to be a natural story that took place over the course of many years also. It's a story over nine years. It might seem just to be a natural story of natural events. The king just happened to choose this sweet, innocent, young Jewish woman. Mordechai just happened to hear a plot against the king. The king just happened to suffer from a bout of insomnia. And then the, the book of the scroll of the deeds were opened up and just happened to show Mordechai and Haman happened to be there and so on and so forth. And all the pieces just fell into place. But Esther is urging us to wake up. See Hashem's hidden hand in your everyday. It's not only about the big miracles like the splitting of the sea. It's about the little moments. God is in every sunrise, every soul, every success or disappointment life brings. We won't always understand Hashem's ways, but His presence is here. Even now, amidst this most challenging time our world is facing. Esther refused to lose hope where it seemed and when it seemed as if God's protective presence was lost in a dark fog. <coughs> Excuse me. She knew, ultimately, even if it feels as if God's hand is hidden, He is directing and watching over us. He will never abandon us. Hashem is always there behind the scenes. Hashem is always there, even if it seems like He is hiding. He's doing it to be anonymous, to having anonymity, to make sure to sound and be nameless, but to realize that he's always there. And that's a point to remember. It's not important to be in the limelight. It's not important to be mentioned, to have your name mentioned. It's not important to have covered, to run after covered. But it's more important to remain anonymous. It's more important to be behind the scenes. H.com also points out with author Yisrael Juskowitz, on Purim we dress up with masks and costumes. The seemingly superficial custom is laden with deeper meaning. On Purim we remember that in the world nothing is as it seems. The real world lies beneath all the superficiality. In fact, the words Megillat Esther, the scroll of Esther, like we pointed out, means reveal. Megillah in Hebrew, the hidden, to reveal the hidden. Megaleh in Hebrew means to reveal, and the hidden, Haster, to reveal the hidden. The Purim story peels back the mask and reveals that which is hidden. Many in the main, of the main characters in the Esther story wear masks, not identifying who they really are or what their true motives are on a, on a, on a slightly... Tangential level, Lahavdil, isn't it interesting that we're having Purim again this year during the time of COVID, during the time of Corona 2020 to 2021? It started around the time of Purim, and now we're all wearing our masks in public around people. We're wearing our masks and hiding behind masks. And in general, when we dress up, we're hiding behind costumes. We're hiding behind masks. How interesting that this time period is right around Purim and going through Purim before and beyond. So when in the characters in the story, they wear masks, not identifying who they really are or what their true motives really are. Haman pretends to have only the king's best interests in mind when he advises the king to annihilate the Jewish people, pretending that the Jews are a threat to his kingdom since they follow their own laws and customs and not those of the rest of Persia. In reality, he sought to destroy the Jews for his own evil genocidal wishes as he was the descendant of Amalek, the ancient biblical tribe that was best and set on the destruction of the Jewish people. 
Mordechai never reveals that he is a relative and friend of Esther's. He pretends to be a simple person who happened to save the king's life. It is Esther who reveals it to the king at the end that Mordechai is her dear relative. And of course, Esther herself wears a mask. She pretends to be a Gentile queen, never revealing her Jewish identity until the very end of the Purim story. And the master of the universe himself, Hashem himself, God himself, wears a mask throughout the story. Hashem's name is never mentioned in the Megillah. In fact, the entire Purim story seems to come about completely through natural occurrences. There are no open miracles in the story, but that's the point. Moshe hides himself in the Torah. It's about being anonymous, but still being completely involved. Hashem hides himself in the Megillah about being completely behind the scenes, understanding that Hashem causes everything in a miraculous way, but in a hidden way. So too, we too can be involved in helping others and doing mitzvahs, doing chesed and learning for others. But it doesn't have to be with fanfare. It shouldn't be with fanfare. It should be anonymous. It should be behind the scenes. It should be nameless. We should be nameless, becoming and being and remaining nameless. The Talmud alludes to this idea as well. The Talmud asks, where do we find a hint to the Esther from the Torah, like we talked about before, from the verse, Anochi Aster Haster Mipanai, which means, behold, I will hide my face from you. The name Esther comes from the Hebrew word Aster, hidden. Indeed, God is hidden throughout the story, and it is up to us to see his hand. This is the beautiful irony. Haman is trying to deny the hand of God in everything. And right in the same story, God is showing that he, in fact, is orchestrating the whole story. When we read Megillah's Esther, we are revealing that which is hidden, Megala et Hester. We are revealing God's guiding hand even in natural occurrences. Perm shows us that the entire world is a mask. The whole world is wearing masks now, literally, figuratively, during COVID times. But in general, the entire world is a mask. Understanding that this world is not even the real essential world. Olam Haba is the real essential world. This world is only a prosdor, is only a corridor. Bifnea Olam Haba, Perkeavis teaches, Hatkin Atzklaba, Prosdor Kadesha, Tikanus the Olam Haba. Kadesha, Tikanus the. I forget the ending of the Mishnah, but prepare yourself in this world. This world is not the real deal. This world is preparing for the next world. The real world remains underneath the surface. In life, so often we wear masks, especially now during COVID, afraid for those around us and protecting ourselves and being healthy and safe from those around us, wherever we go, whatever we do, till it fully goes away. And in life, so often we wear masks, afraid to show our true spiritual selves. So in Purim, we purposely wear the mask to expose it for what it truly is, nothing more than a facade. And we drink to the point of openly showing our inner spiritual joy. I'm not going to get into that point right now, but suffice it to say, you could also take a nap and also whatever zone out so that you can't tell the difference between Baruch Mordechai and Ar Haman. We read the Megillah story and see the secret hidden hand of God revealed once and for all. The Talmud compares our exile to night and the Purim story to dawn. For when dawn comes, all is revealed. And what once appeared to be dark is now bathed in shimmering sunlight. Let us all remember the beautiful message of Purim and indeed reveal the inner beauty within and appreciate God's hand in all that we see and in all that we do. 
We need to realize that Hashem makes Himself anonymous not only in the Purim story but throughout our lives as well, but is always pulling the strings and always orchestrating things behind the scenes. We should realize that Moshe, in the intro verse, the intro passage to this week, Hashem is talking to him, but he is hidden, he is hiding, even though obviously he's fully involved. Obviously he orchestrates and coordinates everybody involved in the Mishkan, setting up the people to build stuff, teaching Aram and his sons how to be Kohanim, and fully involved in the center of taking care of everything, but the name is not there. Hashem's name is not in the Purim story. Hashem may set things up, the world in the world gravity or weather or nature, giving whatever scientific terms he decides to have people use so they can pretend that it's science and not Hashem, but science is from Hashem, obviously. But it's really all Hashem hiding, remaining anonymous behind the scenes. We too must do what we can to remain anonymous behind the scenes all while helping those around us. In fact, look at the levels of tzedakah pointed out to by the Rambam. I talk about this a lot. If you think about it, Chabad points out Maimonides' eight levels of charity, Rambam's Shmona Drachem Le Tzedakah, or whatever we call it, it's the eight levels of charity. It comes from Mishnah Torah, Hilchos Tzedakah, Yud, Perak Yud, and it's Halacha Zayin to Yudalid. There are eight levels of charity, each greater than the next. The lowest level is that of a per, of a person who is not able to give willingly. You know what? We're going to go the highest level to the lowest. The greatest level above which there is no greater is to support a fellow Jew by endowing him with a gift or a loan or entering into a partnership with him finding or finding employment for him in order to strengthen his hands so that he will not need to be dependent upon others. You give him a job, you don't tell anyone about it, you set him up so that he could succeed, you teach him how to do the job, to be involved in the job, and he won't need anyone's help, that is amazing. And you do it while remaining anonymous, no one has to know, no one has to be told, it's not for fanfare or for kavod, it's just for the fact of helping him the highest level. A lesser level of charity than this is to give to the poor without knowing to whom one gives, and without the recipient knowing from who he received, for this is performing a mitzvah solely for the sake of heaven. This is like the anonymous fund that was in the Holy Temple in Jerusalem. There the righteous gave in secret, anonymous, nameless, and the good poor profited in secret. Giving to a charity fund is similar to this mode of charity, though one should not contribute to a charity fund unless one knows that the person appointed over the fund is trustworthy and wise and a proper administrator, like Rabbi Hanania ben Trajion. A lesser level of charity than this is when one knows to whom one gives, but the recipient does not know his benefactor. The greatest sages used to walk about in secret and put coins in the doors of the poor. It is worthy and truly good to do this if those who are responsible for distributing charity are not trustworthy. The fourth lesser level of charity than this is when one does not know to whom one gives, but the person does know his benefactor. The greatest sages used to tie coins into their robes and throw them behind their backs, and the poor would come up and pick the coins out of their robes so they'd not be ashamed. A lesser level, the fifth level, than this is when one gives to the poor person directly into his hand, but gives before being asked. The sixth level, the lesser level than that, is when one gives to the poor person after being asked. The seventh level, a lesser level, then this is when one gives inadequately, but gives it gladly and with a smile. 
And then the lowest level is the lesser level, the eighth level, is when one gives unwillingly. So obviously the best is to support someone. So support a fellow Jew with a gift or a loan or giving them partnership, giving them a lo- giving them employment, finding them a job, giving them a job so they can be independent. And then the second level is when it's anonymous to who you're giving is anonymous and the person receiving doesn't know where it's coming from. You don't know who you're giving to and they don't know who they're receiving from. That's wonderful. Anonymous both ways because the idea is to help people anonymously, to help people while being nameless, to help people while... Them not having to know where it comes from. You don't have to know where it's going. You don't have to know who's getting it. And they don't have to know where it comes from. And that's being anonymous. Be like Hashem. Hashem was anonymous in the Purim story. He was anonymous, pulling the strings, taking care of things, but nobody had to know. He wanted it to seem like it was a natural order of things so that people could understand and figure out, really, it comes from Hashem. If you're doing tzedakah, you're helping out people, you're doing things... Why do people have to know? Do you need the cover? Do you running after the cover? Let it be anonymous. An anonymous sponsor gave your friend, gave your brother, gave your sister money. I wonder who it came from. Doesn't have to be named. It just should be done. Ah, we got food from someone, but I have no idea who it is and who gave it to us. But it's a wonderful thing that they did. Although I would say for tzedakah, yes, for gifts, though, there is an element of telling people who the gift comes from because then you could be thanked and it's nice for a person to be able to thank someone. Akar Satov, gratitude and being thanking someone else, having Hoda is a big thing also. So that's a whole different discussion, a whole different level. But when giving tzedakah, sometimes it is better to do it anonymous. As the Rambam explains, it's the best level when it's anonymous both ways. Being nameless in our lives is good. Being anonymous in our lives is good. Doing good for others without fanfare, without the limelight, is good. A lot of times you see in secular culture that 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 the stars or people or entertainers or whatever, Lahabdil, they do good, but they have to have their name on it. They have to splash their name on a building. They have to splash their name on this and on that. What I find very inspiring is when we drive around different places donated anonymously. This wing of the hospital was given anonymously. What a beautiful thing. They could have easily had so much kavod, could have easily had so much honor and so much respect in some ways by saying who it was. The the Sprinkle Springenheimer's wing of of geriatric surgery, for example, just making up a name. The Yankel Schmerl pediatric ward, for example. And that person could have done it, they could have had their name, but it's beautiful when it's donated anonymously. When people raise money for a shul and it's anonymous, you give to a, an organization and it's anonymous. You donate a building, you donate farm, you donate whatever, your time, food, clothing, money, anything you do, you do it anonymous, that's a really nice thing to do. And it's so easy nowadays to do things anonymously. Giving clothing and a clothing donation, we have a little drop-off place near one of the restaurants in our neighborhood. You know, I try to I try to drop off things every now and again, like uh, kids' shoes or whatnot I did the other week. And, you know, I look both ways and I see if anyone's looking and I drop it in. Nobody knows where the shoes came from. I don't label the shoes that they came from Reb T. I don't label the shoes that came from Reb T's kids. We just give them and nobody knows, you know. And when you give money and you donate money, you could do it anonymously. You cook for other people and they don't see you. You could just drop it off anonymously. Although, again, there is some aspect that people do like to thank others and we want to give them the opportunity to thank people, so maybe. And when you give when you give to others, you give food and you donate food to a pantry, you could just drop it in the pantry, put it in the pantry, nobody has to know where it comes from. What a high level the Rambam explains. After giving someone a job, 
when it's given to someone they don't know who it is, and it's taken and someone takes it and they don't know who it comes from, that's a wonderful high level. Being anonymous, like Hashem did in the Megillah and all over history, many times Hashem is hiding on purpose. And like Moshe did, where he, he had his name erased from Titzavah, from this week's Parsha. Anonymous, nameless. We should do what we can to remain anonymous like Moshe did in the Parsha and Hashem did in the Megillah and Hashem does every single day of our entire lives. Don't look for the limelight. Don't look for the honor. Don't look for the kavod. We don't need the kavod. We don't need the honor. Don't look to be the center of attention. Do things, but do them right. Do things, but do them quietly. Do things, but do them without fanfare. Do things in the right way, anonymously. Give people money without them needing to know who it comes from. Send people presents or gifts or food or clothing without needing to be in the limelight. Give clothing to others without needing to be named. A clothing drop-off site. Give food packages or give people food without needing to say your name. Learn from Moshe. Learn from Hashem to reside and to live and to do anonymously, to be nameless in the quiet undertones of the story, in the quiet elements of the story, and in the quiet corners of history making your mark. We see how Hashem does so in every single day of our lives. We see how Moshe does so in Tetzaveh. Why not try to strive in our own lives to do so, being an anonymous donor, being an anonymous giver, doing what you can, fixing things around the house without needing a thank you, without needing to be acknowledged, just being like a silent guiding handyman, being a silent guiding fixer-upper, being a silent guiding person. And this is really talking to myself. I have to be better in all aspects I ever talk about. But even in this aspect, especially in this aspect, but in general, in all aspects, but including this one, if we do something, we don't have to tell what we did. it. We just did it to help. I don't need it to explain to the kids that I did the laundry. They just know that they have the clean clothing. I don't have to explain that I did the dishes or I cooked. They just see the food. They know it's there. They know the dishes are clean. You don't have to do it. You don't have to explain it. You don't have to say it. You just do it. Be nameless. Be anonymous. Do and give as much as you can in all of your days. But don't look for the fan for it, don't look for the need for it. If Hashem, for our entire span of all these thousands of years, can do so, Moshe can do so for all eternity in this Parsha, how about we do so in our own lives, a little bit every day, a little more every day, to live and be in an anonymous way, to live and be in a nameless way. This has been the Audio DT with Reb T, and I'm your host, Reb T.